0: World, we got this. The podcast talking big global challenges with the experts taking them on. Brought to you by the School of Global Affairs at King's College London. Hello, my name's James Bagley and this is the World, We Got This podcast from King's College London. We hope you're staying safe and well wherever you're listening. Here in the UK, we're in a second lockdown at the moment and so we wanted to bring you a bonus episode today. Today's podcast is actually a recording of an event we ran here at Global Affairs as part of the public panel series for 2020 entitled World in Focus. Our opening event explored the global housing crisis and was chaired by Owen Hathaway, Culture Editor at Tribune magazine. As you'll hear, it was a fascinating discussion and we hope you enjoy it. As always, please do rate and review us wherever you listen to your podcast. It helps us reach more people. With that, we hope you enjoy this bonus episode of the podcast, Broken Cities, The Housing Crisis in Focus, with Dr Deborah Potts and Professor Philip Hubbard. Over to Owen.
1: Um, Hello. Um, You're about to be watching a panel discussion about the global housing crisis, um, which forms part of the 2020 King's Global Affairs Public Programme. This year's programme takes the form of a series of virtual panel discussions on global issues, Future events will look at inequality, trade wars, and the climate crisis. You can find out more at the King's website. Today's event is in partnership with the KCL Urban Futures Research Centre and the Department of Geography. And um, we'll be discussing housing crises around the world, and particularly um, Deborah Plotz's book, which you can see here. Um, you can see a sort of extensive dog ears that I've uh, applied to it. Um, Dr. Deborah Potts, who will be joining us first, is an Emeritus emeritus Reader in Human Geography and member of the Urban Futures and Contested Development Research Domains in the Geography Department of King's College London. Her main research interests lie in the fields of urban studies, migration and development studies, and she has recently published a book, which I have been waiting about, Broken Cities Inside the Global Housing Crisis, which is about why housing has become increasingly unaffordable in large cities around the world. Also joining us will be Phil Hubbard, who is Professor of Urban Studies and Director of the Urban Futures Research Group in the Department of Geography at Kings. He is currently editor of Urban Studies Journal and has written widely on urban issues, particularly the urban conflicts relating to gentrification and displacement. His most recent books include The Battle for the High Street, published by Paul Graven in 2017, Key Ideas in Geography of the City and is currently working on a monograph from Manchester University Press on the geographies of Brexit and the changing identities of towns on the Kent Coast, Borderland, Identity and Belonging at the Edge of England. I'm Owen Hatherley, I'm the author of several books, uh, most recently Red Metropolis, Socialism, Socialism and the Government of London, published by Repeater in about two weeks, and uh, just published with Open City, I've edited an anthology called The Alternative Guide to the London Boroughs. Um, so, what we're going to do is have um, around five minutes kind of setting out their stall from Deborah and from Phil. Um, then I'm going to ask a couple of questions, and then there is space for questions from you, the audience. Um, we're supposed to be punctual on an hour, so hopefully it will all run smoothly. So, thank you, Deborah.
2: Okay, thank you. Good afternoon. As Owen has just said, I've just published a book entitled Breaking Cities, uh, Broken Cities Inside the Global Housing Crisis. And it's a book that derives from decades of research on livelihoods, housing and other processes in the cities, mainly of Southern Africa, combined with teaching master's classes in urban studies in the geography departments of SOAS and King's. There were students from many different disciplines and backgrounds from cities all across the world. The conditions which influenced the housing supply in these various cities were so varied it was almost impossible to find any common ground I found for the purposes of examining why there was always a significant proportion of the population and in some cases most of the population who could not afford decent and legal housing in these cities. However one thing that always helps students to understand why was the concept of what I term the housing dilemma. This refers to the fact that in every large city globally Labour market processes determine that millions of people are paid such low wages or have such low incomes, they cannot afford to pay for decent safe housing delivered by the formal sector. In other words, the sharp end of housing affordability problems anywhere are derived mainly from the working of labour markets, rather than the supply of housing. However, most policy and much of contemporary analysis focuses on the latter, diverting attention from the key issue. The concept of the housing dilemma is at the heart of my book. I argue that in any city where the primary mode of production is capitalism, and that's most cities in the world nowadays, there will be many people whose incomes are too low for the formal private sector to provide housing that is profitable, so they don't. It is therefore impossible to rely on that element of private sector to provide housing for that section of the population. And this is true no matter whether you're in Shanghai or you're in Lagos or you're in Bangkok? Are you in London? or you in San Francisco? It's a global issue. Many of the workers in the housing dilemma are the sort of key workers whose contribution to the function of cities has so much come to the fore in the current pandemic. Without their work, cities cannot function. In other words, their work makes cities work. They are really important and yet they cannot afford decent housing very often. This includes many of the people in the informal sectors of the cities of the so-called Global South and the so-called precariat, people on zero hours contracts and so on, which is becoming so much more common in the cities of Europe and North America. The housing dilemma and its link to the functioning of labour markets is a chronic condition of capitalism. It's not a crisis, it's always there. There are various reasons why this situation has morphed into crisis, however, and that's why the book has crisis in the title. These are shifts in underlying structural conditions. They include, for example, the fact that earnings have risen more slowly than the cost of housing over the past 40 years or so in the countries of the global north. In addition, although related to that point, these countries have seen a shift away from the post-war social contract, that had created a more regulated type of capitalism, with state-backed safety nets for the poorer members of societies, and that included all sorts of projects and policies that made it possible for people to afford housing where the state intervened. This has been replaced by a return return to liberal capitalist values, so-called neoliberalism, which promoted the rolling back of the state and the prioritisation of markets. And that's a shift that has reshaped the nature of the housing dilemma and vastly extended its reach. It's the purchasing power of people in any city can be described by income distribution curves. And what has happened is that many in middle income groups now find themselves dragged down or towards the housing dilemma. The deregulation of finance also led to egregiously risky lending to low income households for housing, which eventually and inevitably they could not pay. Now, As we know, this led to the financial crisis of crash of 2008. The subprime mortgage disaster demonstrated the absolute truth of the housing dilemma. That is that the private sector really cannot profit in the long term from those in the low end of the income distribution. Additionally, policies that previously helped prevent The intensely negative outcomes of the housing dilemma, such as dangerously inadequate housing and poverty levels that are exacerbated by unaffordable rents, have been increasingly underfunded or simply discarded in cities across the world. In the poorer countries of the world, many useful approaches to improving housing conditions, such as properly funded upgrading and site and service settlements and recognition of informal settlements have become less successful because of efforts to rely on the private sector and often ill-fated attempts to recover full costs from ostensibly low-income housing projects. All this means that there is a cohort effect. It means that younger households are much more likely to struggle to get access to reasonably decent and well-located housing compared to their parents. In the wealthier countries of the world, housing conditions that were once assumed to be things of the historical past, or only likely to be encountered in poorer countries, have started to re-emerge slums are in the remaking. Presumed differences between the housing conditions of the cities of the global south and those of the global north are blurring. These have been the conditions of the past few decades and they have caused a perfect storm for housing affordability and as the book title suggests, in my view they have broken the cities.
1: Thank you, Tepra. Um, Phil, you have, your time starts now. Yeah, thanks. Um,
3: Unlike Debbie, uh, my work doesn't have that uh, global purview. Most of my research has been UK-centred. I've looked at issues to do with housing and gentrification in London, but also in provincial cities in England mainly. And uh, given the current situation we're in, it's not going to change in the near future. But what I really appreciate from Debbie's book is the way in which it talks about the commonalities between Global North and Global South, and particularly the idea that although we might begin from a perspective that questions of housing supply and demand are very different in global north and global south, actually many of the same rules apply. Um, And I think when we turn to the UK in particular, I think we we might start from an assumption that supply and demand in London works in a particular way and we can't learn anything from the global south. I think Debbie's uh, uh, book turns that really on its head and I think it's really valuable from that perspective. So when we turn to the UK, We seem to have this particular idea that, yeah, we have a crisis of affordability. We have a shortage of affordable and decent homes, which is particularly acute in London. And we have a Conservative government that promised the solution to this, which is one million more homes by 2025, as a solution to the housing crisis in the UK. And that sounds like a really ambitious programme for house building. In fact, it's not very different from the number of homes we've seen built in the last five or six years in the UK anyway. And as a warning note here as well, we think there's been about a million new homes built in the UK in the last five years. The number living in temporary accommodation has actually gone up by a third in that same period, which instantly makes us think, well, actually, building new homes isn't the answer to the housing crisis. We we are facing more temporary accommodation, uh, more people living in substandard accommodation. I'll return to that in a minute. We also might think about the fact we're now in a situation where the average London rent constitutes 75% of the average monthly salary in London. So although there's been an increasing supply of housing in the capital, contrary to many headlines, the affordability of housing is clearly decreasing rapidly in the capital. To put it in context, we go back to the year 2000, the average rental in London was around uh, 50% of the monthly salary. So it's increased by uh, 50% in this this, uh, time. And all of this, I think, underlines Debbie's point that increasing the supply of most types of housing doesn't really make any difference at all. It's the housing problems faced by the poorer groups in our richer cities, because those groups can't afford most types of housing. So Debbie points out that social housing has to fill in. It has to step in to fill the gap. But if we look at London, it's been squeezed, it's been badly squeezed over the last 20 years or so. Neoliberal urban policies, Mean we no longer see subsidised housing to the extent it used to exist, and stock transfer, the increasing commercialisation of housing uh, associations means that we are seeing attempts to maximise the profitability of housing development, and we see the deliberate encouragement of the rollout of the gentrification frontier into many formerly affordable areas of London, and that's really one of the main research projects that's uh, preoccupied me for the last five years or so research that I've been completing with Loretta Lees well known for her work at gentrification currently based at Leicester University. We've been looking at the renewal of council estates in London and when we say renewal we should probably say demolition because that's what we're talking about here. The demolition of subsidised council homes in the capital has been justified over the last 20 years on the basis that it's been necessary to redevelop these estates at higher density to provide more homes for Londoners. And the idea being you can knock down an estate that was built in the 50s, 60s, 70s and rebuild it actually at a much higher uh, rate of density. So, densification is what's going on here. And this densification is justified with reference to the need for more homes uh, for Londoners. To make this happen, what we've seen is the GLA and London boroughs more or less serving up affordable land in London as an unmissable opportunity for developers to make profits from undervalued neighbourhoods. And I think some of this process is well understood, but it hasn't been particularly well documented and mapped. And we've sought to try and pick into this. We found about 54,000 council homes have been demolished on 190 odd council estates across London. And that's resulted in the displacement of tenants, typically in an outward direction to neighbouring boroughs. Sometimes they return, sometimes they don't. Leaseholders have been bought out and they simply can't afford to stay in London. So there we're talking about a much wider geography of displacement in London. We're talking about entire communities who've built up in their neighborhoods and invested in their social networks being broken up. What has this done? It's allowed for an additional 46,000 homes to be bought in London over the last 20 years. So through densification, we see additional homes in London but less than 25% of homes on these redeveloped council estates are socially rented. 15% are also classified as affordable, 5% are shared ownership. The majority is market rate. So what we're talking about here is the addition of more and more housing that makes profits for developers at the expense of affordable housing. More widely, we can note that the GLA housing programmes last year provided 9,000 affordable homes, but only 2,000 of those could be described as socially rented. That is capped at a level that is genuinely affordable by Londoners. We see very slippery language going on at the moment as well, whereby some of the statistics present the idea of affordable housing, but actually there are new categories that slip in there. So we've got the idea of London affordable rents, which aren't really socially rented at all they're more than £600 per month or more than 50% of minimum income in London for a one-bedroom flat per month. And that's considerably more than the average weekly rent for a council flat or a housing association property, which is typically between £450 and £500 a month with service charges. So if these kind of tendencies continue, the financialization of housing in London, the gentrification of housing estates, the displacement of the working poor in London, what we might begin to see, I think, is kind of hinted at in Debbie's book, it's convergence of the global north and the global south. More homelessness, more people living informally and illegally. And although we start off in the perspective that actually there's not a lot we can learn from Harare or Kinshasa and Learn from the global south and cities of shanties and and townships. When we look at London today, why shouldn't we be looking for that form of illegal occupation? And we don't have to go back too far to uh, a report that uh, was published in 2017 that suggested there could be as many as 9,000 people living in back garden sheds in London, 6,000 in Slough alone. And, you know, we turn a blind eye to that type of thing. But I think, you know, given the kind of the broken cities thesis that Uh, Debbie is proposing here. I think we we, we need to recognise that there's much more commonality between the global north and the global south than we might initially suspect.
1: Thank you Phil. Um, So I've got a couple of questions um, which are sort of mostly for 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 Debbie and I think Phil can come in on them and then one, one, one for both and so my first point comes very much from the book and it's it's a thing that people have already kind of touched on which is about the specific connections between the global south and the global north and one of the ones that i really that really struck me in the book was about the kind of question of slum upgrading so to speak um this kind of idea that um the kind of way to sort of renovate or make decent, to use the term, used by by policymakers a lot of the time, um, informal or self-port housing, is to um, kind of connect it to infrastructure, is to kind of retrofit it and so forth. Um, And and Teppi notes that one of the things that that, that seldom sort of brought into this is the way that this is something which happened extensively in the global north. And the example that she uses is um, the... um, way that victorian terraces and back-to-backs which originally wouldn't have had say um central heating indoor toilets plumbing etc gradually were sort of given them over time so that now they're basically standard so that this is something that's uh, that's actually sort of already happened but that these two things are never really connected and i think this then sort of intersects in quite an interesting way with the way that the book talks about um the kind of reappearance of forms of poverty which have sort of dated from the Victorian era. I mean, one of those examples is obviously the sort of beds and sheds that, um, that Phil has talked about. A lot of the examples in London that feature in the book are very of, of extreme overcrowding in, in, in London are examples of this. Um, and Debbie, you know, kind of students that you've had from the Global South being very surprised by being sort of realising that... Um, you know, that the, 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 these are sort of conditions that that have happened in the 19th century in, say, London or Dublin or Berlin or what have you, that these are kind of things that are in the fairly kind of recent past um, but which are present in, in the global South. So I suppose my question is really what has happened to cause this sort of convergence from this kind of situation in which these things, these the, the, the sort of two phenomena are treated as entirely separate and the current situation in which they seem to be kind of becoming very much the same, the same thing.
2: Yeah. Well, <clears throat> uh, the, it's really big picture stuff, um, this. It's looking at the sort of, the, the structural changes that have occurred over the past 40 years, mainly. Um, and the way in which the nature of capitalism has shifted uh, as a mode of production, so capitalism is, you know, been going on for ages, and it always causes a housing dilemma. But the issue is that we've had this, in, in, as I mentioned in my uh, intro, this shift to neoliberal values. So capitalism is always looking to reinvent itself, as we know. Um, it's also always looking for a spatial fix, which hasn't helped our housing crises either. Well, perhaps we can come on to that later, but. When the Washington consensus, if one's looking at it sort of globally, you know, was really came to power at the end of the 1970s as the major influencer, really, across the world, right, of how capitalism should work, how it should function and so on. It was that return to the liberal values of the 19th century. And that was a very powerful consensus. It shaped and influenced Um, political ideologies and therefore policies all across the world and of course we think okay Thatcher in Britain, Reagan in the United States yeah but they were responding if you like to that to the IMF, to the World Bank, to these big financial institutions that were pouring out this constant stream of stuff about roll back the state, let market forces in the private sector deliver X, Y, and Z. It could be water. In this case, it's housing. And it was immensely uh, effective, unfortunately. Uh, and so it was very, very fast. For example, once that came to power, you almost immediately started selling council houses. About, and then God knows how many were sold in the first three years. It was phenomenal. I forget the precise number at the moment. Perhaps Phil knows. Uh, and then it slowed down. But it's, it was very, very fast. But it wasn't as fast as it happened in the global south. Because I happened to be uh, living in Malawi in 1979, when all this stuff started to be unrolled there by the IMF and the World Bank, because Malawi had such a debt crisis, they had to do exactly what they were told, because they were borrowing money from these two institutions. And there were some very successful projects there. One that was you know, particularly touted across the world, this is a way to deliver decent housing, at affordable rates to so some of the poorest people in the world, in the cities there. And that, all that funding was stopped within two or three years because they were being directed as to where they should be, uh, what sort of policies they should be um, promoting. And they had to be cost recovery. Now we, that then happens here. So you get these shifts over time. So it's this, it was the new phase. So it's not, as I was trying to explain to people, it's not that it is capitalism that has caused this crisis, it causes the dilemma, it causes the chronic condition. It's the new phase of capitalism with the new values and the new ideologies. And they've been around for 40 years now. I mean, many of the people who will be listening to us now will never have known anything else. It's hardly surprising, therefore, that you know, they've taken those sorts of values and ideas on board as being the norm. They're not necessarily, as we know, because we're old enough to remember something else.
1: I mean, I was born in 1981, so I'm exempt.
2: Oh, bless it. you, Owen. I'm so sorry. <laughs> well, me then.
1: <laughs> um, so this kind of leads on to this, this, the, the second point, which is about um, the fact that, as the book kind of points out, there have been various attempts that have been fairly successful. At creating housing which is you know affordable for those on low income so you know the specific rather than kind of euphemistically affordable that is genuinely affordable and so you mentioned 20th century council housing in the uk um, the kind of system of mortgage lending brought in of sort of state-backed mortgage lending brought in in the us after 1945 um, the kind of mass housing programs of of eastern europe of the sort of former second world that no one calls it anymore um and also the housing programs of zimbabwe after independence and south africa after apartheid of the um reconstruction and development program of the 1990s um and one of the most kind of striking examples in those is, is singapore mm-hmm. precisely because of the fact that singapore is so sort of, sort of, it's just sort of a sort of poster boy for sort of market nerds you know it's always this kind of um like you know, global Britain will one day be like Singapore and be this totally deregulated, so you know, thing. And of course, there's all sorts of quite unpleasant things about the way the, way the system works out there. But 80 percent of the housing was built by the local authorities, and the, and this is one of the the sort of thing that seems sort of blindingly obvious. Reading the book is that every time that an affordability crisis has been solved, it's been done so. It's done so via either kind of ignoring the market completely. Or circumventing it or in the case of the us sort of guiding it in a very very state directed way Mm -hmm. um so i suppose my question is how has this managed to be obscured given that there's such a mountain of evidence that this is how you solve a crisis like this how is it that we're served up kind of nonsense like you know if we let developers build more housing that will sort it out
2: i think it's i mean the backdrop is what i've already mentioned it's this shift in the in the sort of ideologies that have been guiding many governments including you know, to some extent, Labour governments, let's admit, you know, you have to be clear that mm-hmm. many, all the governments of Europe um, have all been influenced by this, no matter what their particular shades are, or whether they're centre-right, centre-left or whatever. It's worked its way through. I mean, the EU Housing Commission is absolutely clear about this. It's all been working its way through. Writing very recently, they're saying, you know, they've rolled back the state, nearly all the public housing programmes and subsidies are gone. They are seen as I'm paraphrasing here, a bad thing. And it's really that. It's, it, the, that's how it's been obscured. It's because the message has been put out and it's been very effective, not for us because we're critical social scientists working in urban studies, you know, whatever, um, and uh, critical journalists. And we're the, cr- the crucial people. So trying to, you know, explain to people that's not actually what is, you know, this is not the right way to go. But it's been tremendously powerful. And it has reshaped the way people think about things uh, very effectively and it has also reshaped I think in many cases the nature of local government because the source of people now who may go into local government not any not all by any means as I say in the book there are still lots of people who are soldiering on and doing a very good job but who wants to be in local government to do with housing when all you're doing is basically choosing between all sorts of desperate people to house just a few of them. It's a, it's, it's, it's just such, it's such a soul destroying thing. Everything is grossly underfunded, so that, as actually as Philip Spill said, what happens is that you get this situation where people and many local governments and often their Labour local governments are saying, what a good idea it will be, to demolish this um, council housing estate and densify and then we'll be able to rehouse more people. Um, and it is presented as though it is a good thing for the people who are losing their housing. I mean, it's just beyond belief and it, and it goes on and on and on. Of course, those people know it isn't true, but that's how it's presented and you get exactly the same all the way across the world. So it's, it, the powerful people who control the message, I think, is, is really what has happened. And they've been, as I say, extremely effective across the world. I mean, I'll just give you one example in Ethiopia, right, uh, which is not one of the poorest, well, one of the poorer countries of the world uh, by any manner of means. And the World Bank helped it to the idea of moving people out of um, their housing in the central city, which was, was not illegal, this housing, right? It was not illegal. It had been there since the 19th century. It's perfectly legal. Moving them out of there because, of course, that's very valuable land and moving them into peripheral condominiums and they said this was pro-poor but let me just tell you how much that housing uh, would cost in relation to people's incomes Um, it would cost about 1300 beer that's the local currency for what a one room studio uh, and much more for anything larger and that cost was double the entire monthly wage for a typical skilled laborer not an unskilled laborer Um, and was more than the entire monthly wage of somebody who was working in the formal sector as as a skilled labourer and the equivalent, because I worked this out, the equivalent here would be arguing that it was pro-poor to to rent one room at £2,100 per month. It's poor washing. It's this constant poor washing of saying, here we have a project, it's for the poor, You've only got to sit down with an envelope and a pen and you can work out in 10 minutes. And I do this um, and say, nobody on the bottom 60 or 70% of the income distribution in Addis Ababa can afford this. Perhaps nobody on the bottom 50% of the income distribution in London can afford this, or 40%. It's easy enough to work out. So we have to keep putting these data back back at them. We have to keep... um, uh, I- explaining the situation but they are very all the big agencies the African Development Bank the UN Habitat and so on they produce endless endless agency reports many of which I have read over the past 20 years all of which are promoting a pro-private sector pro-market pro-cost recovery approach to housing the uh, the poorer members of cities and it doesn't work and they wonder why it doesn't work, but it never works. They try it again and again and again, it doesn't work. They put up housing projects, which are frequently empty. And then, after a while, the government has to come in and guess what, subsidise people, otherwise they can't live there at all. Uh, that's not so much promoted in their literature, I can assure you.
3: If I can just come in there and, and bring it back to Britain, maybe, if that's okay. I mean, it's, it's nearly the same type of thing it is exists in the UK. I mean, the provision of housing by the state is, is nearly unimaginable. And I think you why know, that is, is well rehearsed. It's, it's right to buy in the 1980s that took some of the better housing out of the state sector. It residualized a number of more problematic estates, which then became tarred with this reputation of sink estates. And in some cases, there was a reality to it. And one of the things we've been looking at in our project is the way that there was a kind of a selective de from these council estates. Local state didn't keep up the services on these estates and this kind of compounded this kind of reputation of these as being not being decent homes but as Owen has written and other people know you know modern provided council housing in the UK provided decent homes for people. One of the huge contradictions that we found in our research is you know we've had families moved out from estates I know the ocean estate for example in Tower Hamlets you know. Quite well provided central location, four bedroom flats for large families. And they move off the estate. It's then redeveloped, and they're invited back in. You know, a family of four, and they're offered flats which are, you know, not equivalent in terms of space. These homes are shrinking. You know, we're looking at shrinking homes as well. So, you know, this, this idea about decency and about plugging, you know, counts, plugging affordable housing into you know networks of infrastructure providing decent homes and the, the private sector can do it you know i'm a little bit suspicious of that and and that brings me to the kind of the another kind of bugbear of mine which is the, which is the way that you know permitted development rights in the uk are allowing you know the private developers to convert without planning permission in most cases office blocks and increasingly i think we're going to see shops as well and deserted high streets being converted into and to residences um, and the government is seeming to uh, you know, rubber stamp this and encourage this as if you know living in a in a former shop or a department store um, you know is going to provide a decent home i mean these are these are not decent homes and we've seen the headlines we know about the examples there are people living in you know ex office blocks in croydon where you know it's a broom cupboard 13 meters squared when the minimum space standard for Britain is 37 metres squared. I mean, it's a, it's, a, it's a nonsense. And, you know, we've got examples of that all the way across London. Our estimates from looking at energy performance certificates show it's nearly 10% of new homes in inner London that are now lower than 37 square metres for a one-bedroom flat. So we're creating these kind of vertical slums, which brings me back to that kind of global north, global south thing again. Um,
1: we've got three questions now so i think i'll kind of go to go to those and i might come back with one of my own one of my own at the end um the first of those is very easy to answer which is from rebecca spence smith just want to check title of debbie's book as i arrived a little late to session it's called broken cities inside the global housing crisis and it looks like this with this kind of moody black and white cover um the Other two questions. Um, One is from Richard and is, when Trump was campaigning for president in 2016, he used to say things like, the US is becoming a third world country, looking at things like infrastructure, etc. To be provocative, do we not risk the same type of alarmism when we invoke a convergence between North and South? For so many people, brackets most, the crucial factor for your chance for dignified life and labour is the country you happen to be born in. And the second one, and I think we can kind of do these one after the other. Um, how much can we place the blame of the current situation and its most probable evolution on those that we generally call the 1%? How can local councils counter the actions of major hedge funds, investment groups and wealthy speculators in all types of cities? So, Deborah, if you want to start with these. Okay. So
2: how, is, it, is it alarmism and how to counter the... What is about forgotten? How to counter?
1: I'll read it again. Um, so, do we not risk the same type of alarmism as Trump? No, well, I've got the alarmism. Yeah, when we it's invoke it's a convergence between north and south. Yeah. Um, for so many people, the crucial factor for your chance of dignified life and labour is the country you happen to be born in.
2: Mm. Okay. Well, <laughs> the no, it isn't alarmism. It isn't. It's been, I mean, the thing is, it's been going on for 40 years. It might have been alarmism if I'd been saying this in 1990. This is 2020. Uh, I mean, I've watched the situation uh, in, you know, as I say in the book, in Harare in Zimbabwe and in Haringey uh, in London. And they're pleasantly alliterative, but unfortunately, that's not the only two things that are similar about them. Uh, there are really conditions uh, to do with overcrowding, um, space. As Phil says so rightly, space, the space conditions, the, the um, standards that are uh, that are enforced. They generally aren't enforced, you see, but there are standards. Uh, are absolutely crucial to people's welfare. And they are hugely political because that's what costs the more space someone takes up that puts up the price and so it is a massive area of contestation and Phil's absolutely right to put his finger on it but it isn't alarmism um uh, I just didn't I, you know, I disagree profoundly with that the conditions that I describe in the book for many uh, parts of the uh, global north are really reverting to to the very poor rental conditions, it's rental conditions that were so, that were so common in the past. Uh, and it's partly, it, it's not only um, because the prices are going up, but it's also because of deregulation. And that is also part of the sort of neoliberal ideology that there is, you know one should roll back the regulations, roll back the state uh, and make it easier for um, the private sector to, uh, to build a for so-called affordable housing. Uh, and that just hasn't delivered anything decent for people, anything good for people, their welfare has decreased. So you've got more and more and more conditions constantly flagged up by, uh, you know, agents, uh, by uh, NGOs, charities like Shelter and so on. The most shocking conditions are reappearing uh, people hot-bedding. I mean, it used to be so common in St. Petersburg in the 19th century, now people are hotbedding in London, you know, they can't afford, they, they, they sleep and then the next person comes along the shift and they sleep there. You've got families, uh, particularly women with small children, um, living for long periods of time, way, way, way beyond the statutory limits in one room. And in fact, you've got a form of apartheid going on in Britain. Uh, I mean for me working on Southern Africa it makes the hair stand up on the back of my neck when one knows that in fact when they came up with uh, this this idea that people who you know uh, th- that they were going to cut housing benefit cap it yeah uh that w- what the people who were going to be really hit were women with children single mothers with children the the, the government knew that it was actually reported uh and for someone like myself, you know, who's been working where the fact that it is nearly always female-headed households who are the poorest of the poor and who particularly vulnerable and particularly need to be looked after in the global south, you've got a situation in the global north where they're saying, hey, we're going to root you out and we're going to send you out of the city you a know, one-way ticket to Hastings uh, bed and breakfast or something. That is what apartheid used to do. This is, you know, you are surplus to labour requirements in the city. You can't afford to live in the city. We don't want you in the city. We don't want you here politically or economically. And we're going to endorse you out and send you to, in those cases, what we call the homelands, former homelands. It's it's a shocking indictment. I don't think it's alarmism. I think these things are really happening. I still didn't quite get the second question. Um, how to... Sorry. So,
1: how much can we place the blame on the current situation um, on those percent. that we currently call the 1%? And we've got a few more questions kind of asking much the same as the next bit which is how can local councils counter the actions of hedge funds investment groups and wealthy speculators i
2: yeah i think the policies are not the fault of the one percent because the one percent are far too rich on the whole to be in politics i mean some of them are but mostly they're not you know i mean the transnational circuitry i call them they glide around from place to place uh, you know and have second and third and fourth and fifth homes and so on Uh, And they are not driving the policy, uh, although, of course, it serves them very well. Where they do have an impact, though, is, 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 you know, the other part of that thing is, of course, is that once, (laughs) unfortunately, this is going to happen again, but let's, let's stick with the financial crash for the moment. The financial crash had all sorts of feedback loops. One of those feedback loops was austerity, of course, which, of course, has made so many of these things much worse because it helped to cut all the benefits and so on, even further than they had already been cut up to that point in countries such as as this. But the other thing was that quantitative easing, the fact that the global financial system, the big banks, the big hedge funds and so on, they were saved by the pouring of hundreds of billions of dollars into the European financial system, into the American financial system, to stop the world's economy absolutely crashing and it worked but the problem is as we all know is that it created a situation with so much money sloshing around as the classic crisis of capitalism just too much money sloshing around with nowhere for it to become productive uh you know a crisis of investment a crisis of consumption that people that that the one percent were then looking for places to invest their money. Where are we going to invest our money to make a bit of money because interest rates have plummeted because there was so much money um, you know, going around. And where do they decide to put it? In the very cities where the affordability crisis is worst because those, they saw those housing assets as something that was solid where they could make money and so the house prices, which dipped after the financial crash in places like New York and Mumbai and Singapore and so on, then they shoot up again. And they had gone back to where they were within five years and at incredible rates. And of course, were driving, therefore, the affordability crisis because they were dragging all the other prices up with them. You know, it's a sort of avalanche effect down the system. Um, so, yes, they, they play a role, but they don't play that crucial policy role. They're too busy making money to do that.
3: I, mean, I think I'd I come in here, if I can again, Owen, in terms of... The, the danger with that kind of 1% capitalism kind of argument is that all of this is kind of controlled by a 1% who are global. So, yeah, we've got capital is global, we know that. Gentrification is increasingly transnational we know that as well. But I think there are some dangers in this. First of all, in terms of the xenophobia, it, it doesn't much matter if you've got an empty flat sitting in Canary Wharf at the moment, whether it's owned by an investor in China or somebody who's got another home in, in, and lives in Hertfordshire. It doesn't matter if they're UK or not, really. So in a way, there's a kind of a red herring there. And the other red herring is that really when we're talking about you know, transnationalism, it kind of gives the idea of, kind of this is all global. We can't do anything about it. And I think that's wrong. I think there are ways in which these flows, these global flows can be changed. And although I see comments kind of coming in about toothless local authorities, local authorities (laughs) do have a power. They have policies, they can change things. You know, development control, development planning might seem increasingly toothless, sometimes directionless. Local authorities don't have the budgets to develop state housing, but they can work creatively and inventively. So I think there are ways in which, you know, falling into that kind of trap and saying, this is all, you know, pre- predestined, it's transnational, it's global, we can't do anything about it, I think is to kind of throw in the towel a little bit. So I'm a little bit anxious about that type of argument.
1: The transnational thing, I always think of the, the, the sort of, those landlords who I think are, I think are the largest in, in, in the Southeast, which is this kind of like elderly couple in Kent, who occasionally sort of turn up you know being interviewed and being almost kind of like Borgia like in the absolute evil but just being like two people from Kent that were chances and got lucky. Um, but I think that there's a few more um, questions I think that the kind ones on councils are sort of implicit there and we'll, we'll come back to the, that I expect later but um, there's another one which is from Kate McLean which is do you think that with the convergence of north and south in formalisation, poor rental conditions, etc., there is a possibility to develop new solidarities across borders. And might we see any of the more progressive policies to address informal housing from the global south, different ideas of 10-year half-houses and so on be used in the north?
2: Oh, that's a nice one. Yes. Well, I think one of the great things about um, social media and Zoom and things like this is, is that it has really um, feeds into solidarities across borders. I mean, that is going on all the time. I mean, even this, uh, you know, I'm sure there are people, there may be people, I was talking to a Chicago radio station last week and so on, which was very left-wing uh, about the book as well. I mean, there are definitely many opportunities for solidarities across borders and between the global north and the global south. Um, and I think, I think, you know, the final points I make in my book is that uh, rather like Phil was saying, we can't be too, gloom- too gloomy. We, we, we have to analyse the trends and they are not great. But we also have to remind ourselves that it's not a done deal. You know, we was constantly pushed back we must constantly, I mean, as, as I suppose, as academics, we have our role in teaching and promoting knowledge, uh, dissemination and all the rest of it. But there are so many hundreds of thousands of people right across the world who are constantly fighting for the rights of people in uh, lower income settlements. Uh, and, and, the, and of course, the people who fight most for their rights are those people who live in those settlements. And sometimes they're very effective. So, I mean, I, I do agree with that. Um, And the other point, so the the, the solidarities across borders, oh yes, I'll tell you, there's a good example of ways in which the Global North can learn from the Global South in the book. Um, There's, on the Texas-Mexico border, there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people living in what are called colonias. And they're called the same thing on either side of the border and they are uh, informal settlements originally informal settlements on both sides of the border outright informal settlements in the united states of america uh which is a pretty amazing thing they're written about extensively by peter ward who's at the uh austin university of austin texas and the they're mainly sort of uh on the texas side low lower income migrants who can't find housing that they can afford in the texas towns so they the land has been subdivided by the farmers <sighs> these farmers and sold as plots to them uh, and there's middlemen involved in this and it's all very complicated uh, but it's 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 a fascinating process and then people have been building their own houses and living in Uh, you know, uh, trailers and all sorts of things in the first thing. And and the Americans are absolutely horrified by this and have done everything they can to try and halt the process. On the other side of the board, you've got the similar sorts of things, people um, illegally uh, living on subdivisions uh, and so on. And the Mexican side just is, oh, yeah, more of this. Well, we've seen a lot of this in the past. Uh, After a while, you know, there's a sort of negotiation between the city and the people and they regularise them. And they recognize them as part of the city. They give them rights to the city, if you like to call it that. And they bring out, you know, all the services to them and so on. And they become part of the city. And that regularization process has been astonishing as the key process driving the process of urbanization right across the world during the 20th century. Not so much now, but it certainly was then. And a lot of people don't realize that. Hundreds of millions of people have become urban through those processes. And it's the process of regularizing previously informal settlements. It's been phenomenal. That's a, uh, to me, that's incredibly positive. That's been a really good thing. So uh, Peter Ward says that the, you know, in his book, he says, if the Americans did the same thing as the Mexicans, things would be a lot better. I'm paraphrasing, obviously. But he's absolutely clear uh, here about you know, what, what the, the policy direction should be and who should be learning from whom.
0: I'm, I think I can
1: link that quite well with the next question from Rob Cowley, which is, I heard a great conference paper a few years ago, sadly I've never found a write-up, um, which was based on a fairly simple analysis of London local authorities' housing policies. They found that no local authority thought beyond conventional housing provision, private renting, social renting and ownership. I think only one local authority, Hackney, question mark, made a gentle nod towards alternatives. But do you have any examples of local authorities now embracing more imaginative solutions such as communal living or self-built?
2: Phil?
3: Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's an interesting one that Rob's, Rob's asking, because we, we could easily fall into this kind of um, bashing of local authorities and failing to recognise that local authorities are extremely diverse, and within local authorities, you've got some really good people working within planning housing and architecture. Um, and it, it's kind of, it's, it's an odd one because I, mean, I was involved in an event, a little a, a virtual event on Southwark the other week, and Owen was involved in that as well, virtually. And there were people, there was a Labour councillor there um, talking about housing policies in Southwark. And this is a, a borough that, you know, it's very easy to bash in terms of what's happened on the Haygate and the Aylesbury and other parts. But in other ways, there were kind of a recognition of a diversity of ways that the local authority could work with the charity sector, the community development land trust. And there's some very positive stuff that I was hearing there, all trying to kind of reach back and take you know, lessons from the kind of very socially progressive council and state housing that was provided by Southwark in the 60s and 70s. And in this event, there were a number of architects who were involved in that type of stuff. So I guess Owen might be able to come in here as well with some other examples from London as well that he knows of.
1: Yeah, I mean, I suppose from my perspective, the worst period for councils was actually from about the early 90s until about seven or eight years ago. That that was a period in which there really seemed to be an idea that Council estates were there to be destroyed or to be sold off or to be offloaded, that kind of urban green spaces were trash that you should build on, that councils couldn't be trusted to, in the immortal words of Hazel Blizz, wash the pots, you know, that um, anything kind of state run was bog standard, to use the, the phrase of Alistair Campbell. And that has changed. There are a lot of councils that are still doing that sort of stuff and still rolling that out. but there's increasingly a recognition that you have to you know the 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 kind of crisis we're living through is the is the sort that council housing was brought in to solve in the first place um and that demolishing you know your only line of defense against you know the kind of massive rise in property prices and the kind of massive insecurity of people's living conditions was even on a quite kind of um you know, kind of cynical way of looking at it was incredibly self defeating. You were creating an enormous problem for yourself that you then had to manage. Um, so I think a lot of London councils have been looking at preserving or, in some cases, actually building new council housing. The problem is that they then have to do that in kind of, you know, circumstances not of their own making. So a lot of local authorities that have been building housing have been sort of trying to do it in a way by kind of playing the market. So Camden are a great example of this. They have a a thing which they've called their North Sea strategy, which I think is is a very telling phrase, um, where you kind of speculate on the incredibly high value of land in Camden, which, of course, is a borough that sits on ridiculously expensive land. And you use that money from that speculation to then pay for new council housing. And, of course, what that speculation does is make Camden land less affordable. So what you're essentially doing is creating the problem that you're then supposed to solve. So it's really enormously self-defeating, but it it kind of, things like that were meant to sort of circumvent things like the borrowing cap and the rate capping that was brought into councils in the 80s and so on, uh, and compulsory tendering, and all these policies that Thatcher brought in very deliberately to crush councils, to stop them from being able to do things. And it was kind of, well, if you kind of set up these kind of, municipally owned housing companies, they can do this stuff without the state kind of coming in and stamping on them. So it was quite ingenious in that sense, but it's often based on trying to kind of fan the flames and then kind of dampen them down, which I think is a problem. But there is at least an acknowledgement that this, and and that acknowledgement I think is not solely one in councils, but also one you can see in terms of activism. Um, You know, in, in Southwark, the Haygate, was demolished with fairly little opposition. I mean, you know, those that were opposed to this will hate me for saying this, I suspect. But, you know, the the opposition was fairly kind of muted and it didn't seem to have particularly mass support. And then with the Aylesbury, there was much more contestation because people could look at what happened to the Haygate and could go, well, we're not getting those flats. Who's actually getting those flats? You know, these 40-storey towers of luxury flats. Like, we're obviously not getting them. This isn't for us. And so this led to this kind of much more Kind of aggressive strategy and you can see that also with the campaign against the Haringey development vehicle which features in Deborah's book that um that these things were previously people would have kind of listened to this kind of like lend-lease idea of like you know if we densify everything and build a lead private housing it will be better for you eventually somehow and people could look at the actual effects of this in the elephant and go well it didn't <laughs> so can we can we not do this please um so In a way, I think it's actually a less bleak period than it was about 10 years ago, because people know what the problem is, and they know what they want to do about it. Um, But they still have to reckon with a central government that's deeply, deeply hostile.
3: Yeah, I agree with that. And I think in terms of one of the, you know, the examples there, we're talking mainly about inner London, who've kind of experienced now and can see the impact of this gentrification frontier rolling through and what it's done for local communities. And that's that is rippling out. And I think, you know, it's, it's kind of encouraging to know that in outer London now as well, the boroughs are kind of like, going, OK, we can see this coming. We want to take advantage of it, but we're going to try and work it to our advantage in some ways. And so, I mean, Barking is a good example. I mean, they've got the kind of Manhattan on the Thames' type vision. They want to bring in the big investment. But their mantra is very much this kind of regeneration without gentrification. And is this, is this possible? I don't know, but they've got ideas about how they can bring young people on board, how they can create cohesive communities. And I think it's going to be interesting to see how that unfolds. So I think there's, you know, kind of watch this space.
1: Yeah, and I think a lot of the most interesting stuff is actually being done in terms of, I suppose I kind of often look at this from an architecture angle, which is not always the best way to do so, but it is councils in smaller cities where the problems are kind of there, but they're a bit less apocalyptic and that's where like Norwich and Bristol in particular quite wealthy southern cities that have an affordability crisis where councils have just got on and built like good ordinary council housing and it turns out that you can do it I mean you know the Norwich example winning the sterling prize last year was quite a nice moment because it was like actually you could do this it's quite easy to do and it's quite easy to do it well like it's not you know and and also the government won't won't then like descend and like you know (laughs) destroy you you know that that you can actually get away with it in a way um and i i I kind of think there are definitely more positive examples than there were
2: yeah can can i give just one other example from outside of britain but still in europe Um, in switzerland which is not the sort of example that you think would leap to mind and in zurich which let's face it (laughs) Is a bastion of financial capital, if ever there was one, and indeed of the one percent. But let's leave that to one side. Huge numbers of people, significant numbers of people, live in cooperative housing, and the reason they live in cooperative housing is because of the housing dilemma. Otherwise, they'd be on the street, and Zurich's not going to put up with that. So the you know they have cooperative housing has evolved and it's you know supported by the system as as, as a way of dealing with that and in Geneva 21 percent one in five people live in Canton subsidized housing and that, that just goes to show that these things are sort of going on in the background somehow but they're not being put to the forefront but I think that these examples need to be constantly said look these this is the way to deal with it and it happens in, in Zurich, which always seems to be a very unlikely example,
1: Absolutely. I like the example. <laughs> I mean we, we, we've got, um, we, we have to stop at a moment, so there's just like two two things um, which have come up, well actually there's one about the pandemic, but that's such a huge issue, that would need another hour I think. Um, one of them is, that are there fact sheets that activists can access to back up their arguments? Um, Phil, I wonder if there's anything you know of here?
3: Yeah I mean things like the London Tenants Federation have got resources, uh, Estates Watch website as well so for those people who are concerned about the redevelopment of council estates and uh, state housing those are good places to start. Uh, Obviously very active groups like 35% in Southwark who have very good web pages and Twitter feeds where people can look at resources and clearly there are other you know, lots of other places to start in terms of looking at local initiatives. Um, yeah, so we can certainly email, email us if, you've, if you want to find some of those resources and don't know what we're talking about.
2: I would also say that the Office of National Statistics puts out fantastic data on housing costs and relates them specifically to, uh, you know, typical incomes and so on. And I use it extensively in the book. You have to comb through it and so on, but you know the information is really there. Um, and the OECD does nice stuff on uh, what they call overburdening of housing costs for OECD countries. It's not quite—it's not city-specific, so it's a bit of a problem. But there, there are lots of good data out there that can be used. To demonstrate the the scale of the problem.
3: I think that's right. In London as well, the GLA do house building statistics and and they kind of auto-critique the very construction of those statistics by saying when Sadiq Ghan refers to affordability, he's not using it in the right way and this is what we understand by it. So it's quite interesting to see that going on there. There They've very good detailed statistics available.
1: The GLA's report on on state regeneration, build it up and knock it down, it's really worth people looking at. That was a really, I think, important evidence, because it had very, very hard evidence that this resulted in a net loss, in a large net loss of social rented housing, um, which I think, you know, one of the reasons why it's now, you know, I suppose, official policy, although it's slightly honoured in the breach, to ballot all tenants of regeneration schemes is because of that. There's now just this wadge of evidence that this doesn't work. Um, the funny thing is that it came out the same week as a Savills report saying a state regeneration was wonderful and we should do loads of it. with an introduction by Andrew Adonis and that got loads more publicity. So thanks, comrades in the media. Um, anyway, we've reached uh, our hours. So um, thank you, Phil. And thank you, Deborah. And thank you, those of you who asked questions.
0: You've been listening to the World We Got This podcast from Global Affairs at King's College London. This podcast was produced by James Bagley and Lucy Wilman, with editing from Rachel War.